Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. When I first met Eric Fry more than 15 years ago, he was serving as Bill Bonner's Man on Wall Street and helping to co-write Bill's wildly popular Daily Reckoning publication from his New York office down on the corner of Wall and Broad Streets. Longtime fans of Bill's approach to investing, and indeed to life, will not be surprised to learn that when scouting for his Wall Street insider, Bill employed his classic contrarian stance and actually chose for the role a total outsider. That is to say, Eric Fry is a Californian-born volleyball player, who, in addition to wearing flip-flops to the office, yes, even in winter, also shares Bill's well-honed skepticism for accepted wisdom. Over the next few years, Bill and Eric produced hundreds of issues together, calling some of the biggest market moves of the early 2000s, including identifying the then-nascent housing bubble and the subsequent mortgage crisis that was to bring the US and indeed the entire world economy to its knees a few years later. But it wasn't only savvy market insights that set Eric's writing and analysis apart. Like Bill, it was the way in which he told the story that invited his readers to pay closer attention. It was all about the aha moment, as Eric told me years later, about crafting a narrative so as to bring the reader more fully into the story, to really get to the heart of the matter. That, and a wry sense of humour. I recall one particular column in which Eric identified some structural weaknesses in the Toll Brothers Home Construction Company, weaknesses that, to his mind, portended ill winds for the wider markets. Using them as a kind of pre-incident indicator, Eric penned a cautionary tale titled, ominously enough, For Whom the Toll Sells. That was 2007, the year, as you'll recall, immediately preceding 2008, and all that came down the pipes with that. After a few years working side-by-side with Bill on the DR, as it was then known, Eric's keen market observations took on a life of their own, eventually spinning off to become the newsletter's morning edition, a publication all of its own, known as The Rude Awakening, and one which carried the rather irreverent tagline, Hot Coffee in the Face of Wall Street. It was on this project that your humble host came to work alongside Eric, making at least two outsiders in that office overlooking Wall and Broad Streets. Over the years, Eric has been a guiding mentor and a generous friend to me. He joined me recently to talk about the time he was robbed while filming in America's priciest zip code, to share a big investable trend he calls the technochasm, and to explain why he buys gold as a masochist and not a hedonist. Please enjoy all that and more in my conversation with Eric Fry. Up next. Well, you know what? I was um, 
I was going to actually, I know you're in for our listeners edification. You are in uh, California and I'm down here at the Southern end of the Americas in Buenos Aires, yes. but I was going to, I was going to wear my K95 um, mask, my daughter's goggles and a visor, you know, just to maintain proper social distancing. I think, yes, obviously you can never be too careful, but we'll have no, to I, fly without. I may have just gotten over COVID. I'm not certain. And, um, I had, uh, you know, I had a highish fever about two weeks ago. It went away, felt pretty good, got a test, negative. A couple days later, still don't feel very good. Going for a second test, negative. Started to feel better. Then all of a sudden I can't breathe one day, have a fever Ooh. again. Goodness. And I called my, my doctor and he's like, I described my symptoms and he's like, because yeah, you know, there's this thing going around. It's called COVID. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, so I, I talked to with a sense I, of humor. That's what I like. Yeah. That's what I like to say. I said, I know, but I got I got two different negative tests. He's like, oh man, you know, I just wish those tests would go away. They're horrible. Yeah. You, you know, know false po- false negatives. Many, I can't say how many false negatives. Um, you know, I see. Um, yeah. And uh, so he goes, that's probably what you got. But anyway, you'll find wow. out. All right. Well, I'm glad that uh, we'll kick it off on a somber note, but I'm glad, I'm glad that it all, all seems to be well oh, now. It's and you're, you're, you're taking deep breaths of Laguna air. I hope I, I hope I, I hope I had it because then, you know, yeah. then, then, then it's done, right? Yeah. Let's, let's get that COVID thing behind us and we can sail on into smoother waters. <laughs> well, I only, I, I only lament that we haven't, you know, we were talking just before the, the recording here, but that there's nothing interesting either, you know, politically, financially, yes. uh, culturally, sociologically, societally for us to discuss here. So that's true. Uh, we might struggle for same fodder. Old, same old. Yeah, same old, same old. Um, <clears throat> but before we uh, get into some of the subjects that we we're just talking about, um, I thought maybe for those listeners who have seen your name over the years or maybe caught you at a conference or picked up one of your newsletters, but who don't know uh, your chronology necessarily, I thought we could take a little retrospective through the, uh, the life of Fry, uh, as sure. it were. Are you going to cue up some music for this? Or You're going to cue up some teary music. We'll, 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 we'll <laughs> smoke focus. the screen out. Yes, yeah, soft focus on the screen. Yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, get, yeah. uh, we'll get teary nostalgic. But, um, and my puppy jingles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> move forward there. But uh, before you came to work with Agora and Bill Bonner, which we'll get into in a second, you were working with uh, the legendary Jim Grant on Wall Street. Uh, I know this story. I think it's a pretty cool one how that came about. But uh, you want to just retell that and and get us up to speed. This brings us up to kind of the beginning of the century, I guess, which makes it sound pretty old. (laughs) I can uh, place this in a historical context immediately by saying that I developed that relationship by facts. Ah, ah, yes, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, sometime in the late uh, 20th century, I was faxing to Jim unsolicited some investment ideas. And he uh, ignored, basically dismissed the first, I don't know, eight or nine faxes that I sent him over a period of a few months. And then, um, and then one day, he, I got a phone call and it was Jim and he said, Hey, uh, hi, this is Jim Grant. I, I received, um, your, your fax, <laughs> your faxes, <laughs> which one cease right and here. desist. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I decided to call you myself rather than having my attorney, uh, 
contacted. <laughs> yeah. Right. He, uh, and, and anyway, he asked me about the idea that I had presented, and that he and then he wrote about it in France and Shit Observer, and that was the beginning of what became a you know a, a longer term uh, multi year relationship. And ultimately, um, well, not long after that, he asked me to speak at his conference in New York, which was a, an extremely high honor. I will that I'll never forget because I was an unknown very small hedge fund manager and i uh shared the docket that day with um uh, leon cooperman and michael steinhardt and some other legends of the mm -hmm. hedge fund world so that was a pretty pretty big deal and then uh a couple of years after that i uh moved from san francisco wanted to go uh, work in new york and um through a series of serendipitous events i ended up actually working with jim and uh and writing a newsletter for his operation and then later running a financial website so that that was um, a very fruitful relationship and and um yeah always jim is a brilliant brilliant mind great mentor great guy so was, that was a great opportunity yeah that's that's such a cool story i think um <clears throat> and and maybe a lesson for other aspiring uh investors slash writers um Buy a fax, be persistent, and write to Jim yes, Grant. Uh, yes, maybe yes, you'll yes, get yeah. an internship. Be, be borderline creepy. You know, just keep pounding yeah. somebody until they <laughs> stalk someone until they get you on the payroll. <laughs> is the right, takeaway here? Right. Yes. <laughs> so I imagine uh, you, you know you mentioned Jim Grant being uh, you know one of those uh, one of those kind of savantish type minds. Mm -hmm. uh, I can only imagine being around him. You know, he just exudes wisdom, and um, uh, you mentioned you were together for a few years. Uh, are there any are there any of those lessons that he bequeathed uh, to you that kind of stand out, or things that you've you've employed uh, in the years since that have kind of stuck in your in your mind? Sure. Well, he's famous for being in in his writing style, and but it's also very very true just of his of his demeanor is for being self deprecating, and I guess. Um, from an investment standpoint, that that really is that posture is one of of trying to strike a balance between being confident in your in your analyses, but also being humble enough to to know that your timing may be off or the market may not agree with your analyses for some long period of time. I.e., you're wrong. And uh, so I think that that balance is a trait that I I've seen almost every successful investor that I've ever known has, has struck some balance like that. They do not lack for confidence uh, in mm -hmm. their, in their insights and in their, in their um, ability to commit capital to an idea in, in which they have confidence. But at the same time, uh, they're, they also have some level of humility that where they're constantly checking their assessments and, 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 and being able to be flexible. And to exit the trade if they think they're early or wrong or whatever right so right. i think that's a that's one of the main lessons i learned from him yeah that's a i imagine that's that's kind of a hard one lesson uh in in many respects l l learning to reevaluate a position and not get emotionally attached to something yeah. but you know think no about one learns that lesson just just one time that's right. what I was you, have to be, you have to learn it multiple times and then maybe yeah, you yeah. finally get it Right. <laughs> and is it, it's true, I think, that, that you guys used to play handball down there on Wall Street in your, in no, your lunch uh, hour? Is baseball. that urban baseball? baseball oh, okay. Baseball catch, yes. And, and he played in the bow tie, uh, I imagine? 
Uh, yeah, he he was insistent that we wear a suit to work, and and um, and uh, he said at the time it was out of respect for the written word that you would yes. wear a, a suit to work. But um, in the late '90s, when I um, and early 2000s, when I was down there, the Wall Street uh, was was relatively empty. The street itself. Mm -hmm. So late in the day, you're able to, you know, go down and play catch on the with baseballs and gloves. He's he's from Brooklyn, so he's an old Brooklyn Dodger fan. Okay, and um, I'm slightly younger than he is. Grew up in L.A., and so his Brooklyn Dodgers became my Los Angeles Dodgers, and so I grew up a Dodger fan as well, but just the West Coast version, the other coast, yeah, <laughs> the, the other coast, coast Dodgers, yeah. the team that we stole from Brooklyn. That team, right. <laughs> All right. So, so this takes us into uh, late 90s, early 2000s. You know, I was just uh, re reviewing some notes the other day of when you came over to, to work with Bill Bonner on uh, The Daily Reckoning. And I guess the idea there was that you were to be kind of Bill, Bill's man on Wall Street and, and kind of have your pulse on the markets. Was that sort of the idea there? Yes, that was, that was, uh, that was Bill's um, idea. And uh, so I just followed along to be that, <laughs> that man on Wall Street. <laughs> right. And so I, this I, was- I didn't, uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't immediately uh, fit into that role because I, you know, I'm, I'm from California and I was always, I always felt like an outsider on Wall Street, mm -hmm. which was a great role to be in. But then, but then to be nominally a voice from Wall Street was not something that was not automatically intuitive. Now the great the great thing is that Bill didn't want just any old Wall Street voice. He wanted, you know, kind of an outsider's voice from Wall mm -hmm. Street. So it ended up working out really, really nicely. Yeah, the only the only Californian on Wall Street. This is, there's a contrarian uh, theme that that we'll run into here and uh, yes. that recurs over the years. Um, one of which, or one way in that that that, that uh, contrarian streak kind of manifested itself was in um, the Bill's very first trade of the decade, which you wrote about for well nigh on a decade um yes. and i was i was having a look at that just before and and trying to map on some of today's market behavior to what was happening uh around the turn of the uh, the turn of the century and uh, wondering what it was like for you to have been in that milieu where you know gold had been going down for what a couple of decades and stocks seemed like they had, you know, just blue sky ahead and every day was sort of new highs. And so, you know, to, to be a contrarian in that kind of uh, market uh, and recommend, you know, buy gold, sell U.S. equities, which was, which was Bill's first trade. Is that, is that kind of contrarian role uh, comfortable for you or is that something that, you know, that, that oh, yeah, 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 yeah. you have to have nerves I love for? I love a contrarian role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love a contrarian role. It's it's a thematically and editorially, or just sort of psychically, it's an easy place for, for me to be, and I go, I gravitate toward that role very naturally. The problem is that, um, you know, with the benefit of, of some experience, you you can't just simply be a contrarian and expect to to thrive. You have right. to, you know, you have to nuance that a bit. <laughs> and so the great, but the great thing about that particular, it was really, a, it was sort of an editorial construct. It was a framework for everything we wrote about throughout the early 2000s. So the right. trade of the decade was buy gold, sell stocks. And uh, Bill came up with it. I, I joined when, when he had already established that as the trade of the decade. Um, 
then I just spent the next nine years also writing about it <laughs> and, and, and supporting it. That's a good infrastructure. Being, yeah, yeah. Well, and as it turns out, uh, stock, the stock market topped out, uh, the SP 500 topped out in March of 2000, gold bottomed out in, I think, August of 99. Um, so we were basically talking about a coincident bottoming in gold and topping out in the stock market. And those, th those were, uh, you know, major, a major bottom and a major top. Uh, the right. stock market didn't recover that level for a decade. And, uh, and the gold market went on to gain 600% or some such from the lows. So being a pure contrarian worked really well in that, in that setting. Mm -hmm. But um, then if you, just, if you just doggedly stay with this contrarian trade, obviously things end up going the other direction. So gold market topped out in 2011 and spent the better part of a decade going down while stocks bottomed in 09 and uh, haven't looked back since. So if you if you're stubborn about your contrarianism, um, you know you're just gonna run the through cycles. Yeah, right. I think yeah. uh, it's more important um, to really identify unique long running opportunities. And and I mean from a from a purely money making standpoint, you make your yeah. money that way. Right. I was actually going to ask you about that. That next, I, I was looking at an interview with you and your colleague, Brian Hunt, uh, the other day, very, very uh, insightful, uh, entertaining interview. And one of the things that you said, one of your central tenets of, of investing or a way that you like to stack the odds in your favor is to try and identify these big macro um, trends and not fight the tape, uh, as you said, sure. just kind of, you know, jump in. And so I'm, I'm wondering for people who, who say, okay, that sounds easy. You know, to, we just identify a big macro trend and then we just go with it. But how, you know, of all, the, of all the different competing ideas out there, how do you kind of cut through the noise and say, okay, I've identified this particular trend and, you know, now I'm going to start whittling down to investable uh, ideas within yeah. that trend. How do you, how do you get, well, you know, above it all? Honestly, no, no one has a monopoly on, on that kind of top-down analysis. And uh, that's one of the beauties of it is that really anyone can do it to some extent. You're just trying to look around, look at the world around you and say, okay, well, what's the thing that has to happen? What are the things that mm -hmm. are happening? And, um, and then try to get from there to the, you know, the sectors or companies that are going to, going to capitalize on that trend. Uh, the, the good part or the, the most powerful component of that approach is that if you're, if you're right, you're literally just, you're putting yourself in you know, kind of a jet stream. So you don't have to be super precise about the, like any given stock if you're in the right jet stream. Mm -hmm. And also that jet stream can uh, continue to flow even if the overall market is not particularly friendly or, or not flowing in the same direction. Um, so it is in that sense. It's like a jet stream, where at other at other altitudes, other elevations, mm -hmm. you might act, uh, you know, a wind flowing in the direction or not flowing flowing at all, or whatever. So right. you just try to get into the right to the right stream. And uh, I try to think in terms of of three to five um, major trends, and and not focus beyond that. And mm -hmm. and then that's kind of a working group. Right. And, and as you identify the trend, you're going to be wrong about the timing sometimes, or you're going to be wrong about the intensity of that trend. So uh, it's, a, it's always like a kind of a work in progress. 
But um, when you are correct about identifying a trend, then, then in fact, you know, you can make a lot of money um, even if nothing else is, is working well. I can give you a, a pretty simplistic example of, of something um, where a trend I caught last time around and I think is actually on the verge of repeating itself right here today, nearly 20 years later. Yep. So at the beginning of the 2000s, you had, uh, from a headline standpoint, you had the sort of explosion of the Chinese economy, right? It, it, right. The, you know, China was becoming capitalists and they're, they're bull in, the bull in the China shop. I remember every, yes. every conference you'd go to would be talking, you know, people would be, right. businessmen would be doing the math in America. Well, if we can sell this many widgets to the American market and we do the multiples on, yeah, it was, it was a, right. a big bullish time for these stats like, uh, I'm just going to make it up, but you know, okay, China, Beijing used more concrete last year than, you know, <laughs> US economy used the last 10 years or like, right, okay. right. Yeah. Yeah. So it was all this big demand for, for raw materials. But that was a reality. So you had a new demand factor in, in certain commodity markets that did not previously exist. So if you look at the copper market, which is the one I'm going to talk about, yep. uh, the copper market was, in, for many decades, slavishly followed U.S. economic cycles. And so when the economy, U.S. economy only is booming, copper market's booming. When the U.S. economy is tanking, Copper's tanking. That's why they call copper Dr. Copper. It's the, it's the metal with the PhD in economics. PhD in right? economics, yeah. yeah. Right. So mm -hmm. all of that, um, it doesn't go out the window, but, but that, that sort of slavish direct connection uh, minimized quite a bit in the early 2000s when China came onto the scene. All of a sudden, Chinese demand is a big wild card new demand for copper. And the copper producers weren't used to this new demand so they didn't really factor it in so mm -hmm. there was no there wasn't any anticipatory investment in new copper production and mm -hmm. even there wasn't really much of a reactive um you know investment in new copper production so what happens the copper price from 2003 to i think about 2010 skyrockets and stocks like freeport macmoran and antofagasta and others go up tenfold or more Mm -hmm. So I made recommendations in that sector of stocks that went up, you know, more than a thousand percent, two thousand, three thousand percent. Yesterday, I was reading the conference call from Freeport MacMoran from this week's earnings report. Yep. And the CEO, Richard Atkerson, said, "We are in right now a cycle that is reminds me so much of two thousand and three." <laughs> So these are his words. Funny you should mention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's like, you know, back then people didn't realize what was happening in China. Well, right now, people don't realize how massive the, the oncoming demand for copper will be from the clean energy industry, electric vehicles, yep. energy storage, primarily. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, that that new source of demand is both both massive and new and and all globally copper producers have not really prepared for that so we're seeing in his opinion we're seeing an identical setup so this is a so, disruptive new a disruptive new component that's shaking up component. something that's the demand component that's shaking right. up an industry that's not 
prepared inventorily, let's say, uh, to, right. to be able to absorb that new demand. Right. And I think as most people, most people know, uh, you know, you can't just turn on a, a copper mine. You can't just turn on any mine. Uh, right. the, typically, it takes eight to or 12 years to develop any kind of hard rock operation, mm -hmm. you know, copper, gold, um, you know, nickel, whatever it is. So unless, you know, a, a company already is, is well along in the development process, they can't just look at today's supply demand scenario and say, oh, gee, I guess we better start producing more. Right. You can't, you can't do it. <laughs> right. so, Dig faster, uh, boys. Yeah. Yeah. So chances are the copper price goes higher. So that's, that's, that's an example of a, of a powerful, in my opinion, long-term trend that you know, is going to unfold over the next few years, mm -hmm. no matter what else happens, no matter what happens with the general stock market. That doesn't mean that the stock prices will, will automatically soar higher. I mean, if you get a very, very wicked bear market that sort of takes down everything, um, you know, there'll be stocks will be impacted, but but maybe not forever. And those those kind of stocks might come back much more quickly and much more powerfully, and and still chalk up their you know their five x or ten x gains. Right. I'm looking yeah, at those so, kind of opportunities. So that that uh, kind of volatility idea begs the question: How do you know when? I mean, obviously, you're not going to get the the, the bottom ten percent or the top ten percent of, of of a market. And part of identifying these big broad trends is that you don't have to be as precise uh, with your particular timing because no one will call the bottom or will call the top. Mm -hmm. uh, but how do you recognize along uh, one of these big trends when a drawdown is just a drawdown, or when it's a turn in a cycle and and some new uh, cycle has has begun. In other words, you know, straight lines are for geometry class. You know, we say not right. for stock markets or human right. behavior. Right. So, how do we know when we're you know when a trend is maturing? Let's say. Well, you never. I mean, you never know. Um, is unfortunately, and, <laughs> right. and the uh, the way I I look at it is that um, you know this investing is is well, it's both art and science. That's one comment and the other is that it's a marathon. It's not a sprint for most people. So um, you're forever trying to, to find a, a happy middle ground between you know, making a lot of money and not being overly exposed. Mm -hmm. So the, that means something different to every single person. So, the, so sort of the, what I tell people is, hey, figure out what, what your never sell percentage is out of your total bucket. Mm -hmm. And let's say it's just 25% of your, of your liquid net worth that you will never sell or always have, always have exposed the market. Then, okay, fine. So now you can ramp the rest of your 75% as, as you sort of feel about things. If you're feeling mm -hmm. confident, you can ramp or not ramp. But, but there's at least a quarter that you, you, don't, wanna, you don't wanna touch. And maybe that percentage, if you're younger, is much higher. Maybe it's, maybe it's 50%, maybe it's 75%. I don't know what it is because yep. you have to decide it. But whatever it is, figure it out. And then, and then just stay with the powerful trends. You're going to get drawdowns. You're going to lose money. Mm -hmm. But, um, I mean, you, you personally have only, been involved. Only when you sell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, money, yeah, saying, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. But you, you've personally been involved in, in, uh, in Bitcoin, Bitcoin going way, way back, uh, starting from right. when that was uh, – just a, a wee tot of a cryptocurrency, a uh, right. trading below oh. 50 bucks. And, and then- Q, and, and Q, Q soft focus and teary eyes yes, yes. <laughs> again. 
And, and so you've been, you have been with your own capital through spectacular booms and busts in the, mm -hmm. in the Bitcoin phenomenon. Right. Um, and if you are uh, a believer in that currency, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you would hang on to literally every single coin that you bought, you know, seven, eight years ago. It might mean that. Right. Depending on your risk tolerance, but it, but it might not. But, but probably there's a percentage that doesn't go away ever. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you right. ride it, you ride it up, you write it down. And in the case of Bitcoin, you would have ridden it from whatever, 50 bucks up to 18,000, back down to 3,000, back up to 40,000. <laughs> right. And, um, and companies are more reliable than cryptocurrencies or gold or anything or any asset like that because sure. they're a productive asset. They, they, yep. they make something. So um, over time, you know, that growth component is going to bail you out even if you've bought it at the worst time. And I've written a couple of columns over the years about buying great stocks at the worst possible time and shown what mm -hmm. would have happened. And so some of the best examples are things like if you'd purchased Apple shares or Microsoft shares at the very, very top or Amazon shares, at the very, very top of the 2000 bubble and held them to today, what would have happened to you? Well, you would have lost a lot of money in the meantime, but if we fast forward to today, that purchase at the worst possible time in all of those cases would have gone up seven or eight X, not just seven or eight X your investment, seven or eight X what the stock market did. What you the know, market did, yep. You would have been seven or eight or nine times better than what the US general stock market did because you're in these sort of great secular, you know, secular theme monster <laughs> companies. Yeah, yeah, they can be very, very forgiving of, uh, of, of ill, slightly ill timing, even the worst timing. Yeah, and so you can go like, oh, well, yeah, okay, it's easy to say in retrospect, but that's <laughs> not retrospect. I'm, I'm saying, okay, you've identified something that you think is a, a winning phenomenon. Yep. And so you invest in it. You invest in the worst possible time. So what? If you don't have to sell tomorrow, hang in there. You know, yep. You're still in one of the, so I would, put, I would put 5G broadly in that category. Mm -hmm. right. So there'll be ups and there'll be downs, but, but, but generally the, the, the general trend is your friend, right? The general trend is your friend. And, I, and, the, and the 5G phenomenon is, a, is, in my opinion, is still brand new. It's very, very new from, a, mm -hmm. from a, an investing standpoint. Um, yep. there, aren't, there isn't a lot of froth in that sector. This is, even if you get a depression, you know, the, the first and last cent that any major or small company is going to be spending on investing in their own business is going to be some kind of 5G capacity or capability because if they don't have it, they're not going to survive. Mm -hmm. So maybe they're going to cut corners mm -hmm. on absolutely everything else. They're not going to cut corners on that because they can't. So right. um, you're looking at a, a, a five-year minimum, probably 10-decade-long phenomenon of, of investment and growth in initially 5G infrastructure, but then every kind of related technology, every kind of technology that relies on, on 5G infrastructure to to transform how businesses operate. Right. All the pick and shovel operators yeah, off yeah, the mind to mix a, metaphors. A 10-year story. So, yeah. um, so, that, so that dovetails 
Pardon me, I was just going to say that dovetails into uh, one of your other big themes that you've identified. And I think this, uh, we could probably pick it up there. So for, for people for whom technochasm is a neologism, maybe you could, you could define technochasm. It, this was a trend that you picked up, I think, in what was it, about a year ago uh, right now, uh, mm-hmm. early 2020, I think. So obviously did very well in 2020, but, but explain to us what technochasm is and why you think it's a, uh, it's a trend to befriend. Okay, well, another thing that I learned from Jim Grant is to never, ever, ever take credit for someone else's work. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> Moral lessons yeah. and investing lessons. <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, I mean, it's key it's, if you're Jim Grant because you have so many fantastic ideas of your own that you really don't need to steal others. You can be um, charitable and give some to others, so, even. <laughs> so the technochasm idea uh, is, is my colleague Brian Hunt's idea. He's the one that came up with the term. He's the one that came up with the idea. Um, I have been blessed to to embrace that idea and and run with it, but uh, I didn't come up with it. So the it really refers to a couple of of socioeconomic phenomena, and and um, on the one hand, it refers to the um, a kind of creative destruction in the in the in the capitalistic world, where the firms, the companies that uh, innovate and embrace a technological innovation um, or, or uh, um, any kind of applied technology in their, in their business model, business structure, tend to perform much better than those who are you know, Luddites, those who just don't, make, don't adapt as quickly. That's not a new phenomenon, the, the idea that you know, people who innovate and, and create new ways of doing things or succeed better than those that don't. Um, a, a difference is that, that technological advances now are, are um, supercharging success at a faster rate than older technological advances did. So, so the companies that are tech savvy are thriving, those that aren't, aren't, and you get a chasm developing between these two schools of, uh, or cohorts of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Then if you look through to the sort of at the uh, sociological level, the same is true of individual professions. It's those that are more technologically reliant, advanced, and so on, the, 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 the individuals who operate in that world tend to fare better than those that, that aren't. Um, right. And that is creating a, a wealth technochasm in, right. in the country. Then you get to the investment world, which is an application of both of those principles. And so people who are investing in, um, you know, Apple uh, have been faring better than those that invest in, in you know, Kraft Heinz or Post Holdings or, or, you know, pick your yesterday's stock here. Right, right. <laughs> And it's not a, and in each of these cases, it's not a, it's not a moral condemnation. It's not a knock against, you know, the company or the individual or the business or the investment that is on the, on the less advantageous side of the technicasm. We're just simply pointing out that, look, this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. And so if you, if, if you want to succeed as well as you can, you want to move as much as you can over to this winning side of technicasm. You're not, you know, a lot of people can't do it at all. 
for mm-hmm. whatever reason. That's not their business or, you know, yeah. but, it, but if you can, you know, then make that move. So that, yeah. that's the main message of the technicism. I thought it was pretty cool to you. You had relayed this story to me before, but uh, one of the ways that this particular phenomenon manifested uh, itself really came home to roost when you were recording uh, your mm-hmm. um, your promotion for this particular yeah. idea, um, where you were in was it Atherton? I think was the yes the America's priciest zip code. Um, could you just tell that story? Because I think it's, it's very emblematic of exactly what you're talking about. And it's, yeah, it's so a we shot method. a little bit of that promotion on location. Um, and and the, we, we drove around in some of the ritzy neighborhoods of Atherton, which is America's most expensive zip code. And then I think it's something like that's in the Silicon Valley area of California. And then I believe seven of the other 10 right, top prices zip codes in the United States are also in Silicon Valley or in that area. Mm-hmm. And so um, the point we we made, uh, one of the points we made is that, look, the technicals was unfolding right right here in America's pricing zip code because um, just a short ways away w- was um, an area called um, uh, East Palo Alto, which is, uh, which is, you know, a not a prosperous area and where there are a lot of homeless encampments. And so we were showing, look, we have the priciest zip code where houses change hands at 40 million bucks and we're only three or four miles from homeless encampments. We, and where there's an elementary school where more than half the kids that attend that school are literally are homeless. They go, they, you know, and that, and that school is in the shadow of Facebook headquarters. I mean, it's all right together. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, 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 it's mind blowing. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, obviously there's, there's, not, there's not one prescription or, or, or policy or, or social economic phenomenon that's going to bridge that chasm. Um, but, um, you know, again, to the extent that you can do it yourself, there's anything you can do to move yourself on the, on the good side, great. So while we're, we're filming that, we um, went to dinner one night in Mountain View, which is just a little bit further south of Athens and also a very pricey um, area. And um, parked our car, went inside, had, had dinner. Um, this is on a, a, on a boulevard, you know, a well-lighted boulevard in the middle of, of a pricey part of Silicon Valley. Come outside and all the windows of, of our rented SUV had been busted out. And all the camera equipment that we used to film that day was stolen. Mm. And the, the cameraman on our team sheepishly said, well, gosh, in, in Baltimore, I always bring where he lives. I always bring the camera equipment inside with me when I eat dinner. But here I thought, you know, just assumed <laughs> yeah, like who would like be like, it'd be like having your car broken into on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. Like you wouldn't expect that. Right. Right. But it turns out the, uh, the, Policeman that came and to do the report said, uh, "Yeah, it's a, it's a, an epidemic here in Silicon Valley that um, people just go through car by car." Because we've had six break-ins tonight into into cars. Wow! Uh, in Mountain View. Yeah. So that's, he, that's he said it's been a, it's amazing. A, it's an epidemic, and people just like break into a car. They find a nice car, break it, and see what they can find. And and so that's I guess the the, the quick and dirty way of narrowing the technicasm, right? 
<laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, if, hopefully, the 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 thieves took the time to watch the the tape I and got so. the and so. got the yeah, message. Yeah. Although yeah. it was it was raw footage, so I don't know if they learned anything from that. Yeah, and and editing class away from uh, you know yes. bridging the yeah. techno chasm. <laughs> so we talk a little bit. I was speaking with uh, our colleague and mutual friend Dan Denny a little while ago, and we we talk a lot about uh, about this. You know, the the coming apart of America, and and you know we're we're certainly not the first to make this observation, but it is as you say that divide seems to be widening at an exponential rate. Uh, and I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering what that portends for social cohesion. You know, we talk about these kind of uh, sociological trends. I mean, half of the country spent 2020 looking at, uh, you know, watching the television, seeing their retirement funds, you know, go up in value and felt, you know, pre probably pretty good about themselves. While the other 50% of Americans who are not invested in the stock market, um, you know, who very much live paycheck to paycheck, what they saw on the television was something entirely different. They saw, you know, mobs, riots, lots of scary things that, you know, they didn't, you know, that essentially came home to, came home to roost at the, earlier this year. Um, so, I, I mean, I know this isn't strictly a, an investment point, but uh, is there anything <laughs> looking out in the next, uh, in the next 10 years? Does, it, does that concern you at, at all as an investor that there's this kind of you know, something just kind of bubbling underneath the, the surface where society kind of pulls itself apart? Yeah, so I'll just begin by saying that whenever anyone <clears throat> tiptoes toward the, even the slightest of a political theme. Um, <laughs> you tiptoe quietly away. <laughs> right, right. Um, Speaking as an investor, then, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's never, it's, I mean, we felt, um, somewhat, somewhat prophetic um, in developing this technicasm theme starting a year and a half ago. Yeah, because because part of it was is as I described is is it is a sociological phenomenon and it is a very real phenomenon. And we developed, we shot, we wrote all that, shot it all, pr promote promoted all that prior to COVID. And mm -hmm. then you see you see what happens with COVID. And yep. one of the things that happens is if you happen to work for some you know, Silicon Valley firm. It's like, okay, everybody go, go telecommute now, you know, go to your houses. <laughs> right. And, and let's jump on Zoom. Everyone lands on their feet. But if you're, if you're, uh, you know, driving a bus or, or um, bartending or, or um, even physical therapist, you know, my wife's yep. physical therapist, uh, anyone who had a high touch um, occupation, didn't have that luxury. There, there is, there is no technological replacement for driving a bus. Yeah. So, um, so what we saw is that COVID drew a, you know, a wedge in that technicasm. Mm. They widened it out <clears throat> much more quickly, and and so it's not then surprising that you you're going to see uh, sociological phenomena. Let's call it you know, spin off of that, like, like tornadoes off a hurricane. Right. Yeah. And, um, that's what we've seen throughout the last 12 months and both sides of the political spectrum have been, been happy to sort of draft behind that angst to promote their, mm. their exploit reality. perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, um, yeah. And, and so I, I, you know, there's nothing for me to say other than like, uh, 
if I could, you know, wave a wand, it would it would be like, okay, let's let's back off of the divisiveness now and and try to figure out ways to yeah <laughs> to uh, bridge the divides instead of make them deeper. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, we've spoken at quite some length about um, about COVID not really being a um, an event that changed necessarily the course of history, but but I think something more akin to being a catalyst or an accelerant to already pre-existing trends. So you can see, you can already think, you know, of three or four or half a dozen trends, uh, whether it's government indebtedness, growth of the surveillance state, um, you know, society's migration from, um, you know, very, you know, the, the touch and feel economy into the digital realm. Uh, the growth and growth of cryptocurrencies, online shopping, you know, there's, there's a million different uh, ways in which uh, trends that were already in place have now just kind of rocketed ahead. And yeah, of course, uh, the, the technochasm is, is definitely one of those. I was wondering if, um, if when you have a, you know, when you survey and, and, and uh, review those kind of sociological phenomena that again, you are not the author of and would solve with a wand if you could. Um, does, yeah, I, would, I, would, I would solve them with a wand. You, you would solve them with a wand. That's a, yes. <laughs> not a button, just for the, the record, a wand. <laughs> but d does that, um, does that uh, make you think of all, uh, at all of, um, of the historical role that gold has played in such times of, you know, sort of uh, social turmoil um, in the past? Uh, yes, I see. Uh, I see. Is that gold over your left shoulder there? Yes, it is. Is the word gold over your left shoulder? It's a, it's a little it's message. Oh, to me. oh yes, yeah. yes. Um, <laughs> I think gold is more likely to, if if it's going to do anything here, uh, it's more likely to be a response to uh, monetary phenomenon than than anything else. Meaning, yep. very very easy money uh, monetary policies coupled with aggressive fiscal policies, i.e., lots of government spending. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I suspect that a socioeconomic, sociological strife or, or crisis, I, I don't really see that as a likely main driver of any kind of gold rally. But one, one thing I would say <clears throat> is that, um, you know, I always try to look for, not in any Pollyanna way, but try to say, you know, obviously everyone, um, everyone sort of conspires for their own well-being right you you know you no one wants to be dispossessed or you know have some personal trauma uh, economic or otherwise so it's easy to look at things like the you know the our current political situation the divisiveness in the country and and coupled with COVID and this technicasm and say, well, gosh, you know, we're just going to draw these these two dividing lines out ad infinitum, and and that's what's going to happen, right? Everybody on this side is going to be great. Everybody over there sure. is going to be in bad shape, and um, and it's just going to be horrible like that. Well, that that never happens. You know, you never have these this linear progression that just becomes what we think it is right here out five years. Something mm -hmm. people adapt, people change, people try to figure yep. it out, and. Um, and I, I think that that will happen in this case, you know, to some extent in some industries, in some ways, um, there will be people who appear to be the losing end that are, that will figure out a way to win. So what, one more question uh, on gold. And again, I, I, I watched that interview with you and Brian Hunt, which was uh, people should check out um, uh, 
if they're uh, signed up for your newsletter, uh, which we'll mention in a second. But uh, one comment I thought was very funny. I'm not sure if it's a Fry original, but it sounds like it could be. And that was that uh, you buy gold as a masochist, not as a hedonist. Uh, and I, I want you to unpack that. I personally buy gold as uh, as an Epicurean. You know, I have a flex yeah, in my yeah, scotch yeah. and in my yes. coffee grounds and such. But uh, but explain what buying gold as a masochist means. I buy it as a Dionysian. As a Dionysian, yeah, just yes. just in your rum, right? <laughs> yes, I drink. Well, I hold it while I'm drinking uh, wine. Right. Um, yeah. You 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 buy gold um, really as a as a you know as, as, a, as a hedge it's always a hedge right um so you're you can try to speculate on on gold and and try to make make money on it um i think that's a hard game i mean i've done very actually done very very well with gold over the years both as speculations as investments whatever you want to call it both gold and mm -hmm. gold stocks but so i can say that okay yeah i've, I've made money on gold um but uh, i still wouldn't prescribe investing in gold, you know, as a, as a hedonist, <laughs> you know, don't, don't go into it thinking, okay, yeah, I'm going to make a zillion dollars here. You go into it thinking if something else goes wrong, I'll make money here. It will offset my losses somewhere else. Or you go in sort of stock by stock in the sector. If there's some special story in the gold mining sector, like, like there would be in any other sector, if there's a special reason to buy a particular stock, that happens to mine gold, great. Uh, but um, so so learn I, learn I learn from Midas. Sorry, sorry. I was just going to say people know it as the as the Midas metal, but might not be familiar with the mythology. Learn from Midas. You don't want everything you touch to turn into gold. You end up no. with uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't end well, right? Yes. Yeah. Learn from Midas. All right. Well, uh, Eric, I'm, I'm cognizant of your, of your time here and you've been very, very generous. Was, uh, was there any other um, passing remarks you wanted to, to leave us with before we wrap this up? Maybe, uh, maybe something you're looking forward to, to doing once you can um, you know, get on a plane and fly somewhere new? Yeah, well, I'd like to go back to France. Um, haven't been there in a while. The last time I was there was with you. Yeah. And, There's um, always the Paris of the South, you know, uh, down oh, here. <laughs> yes, yes. The Paris of the South that doesn't have any oysters. And I know that. Right, right. right. <laughs> yes, a, 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 a depressing paucity of Finn Declares, alas. Actually, this yeah. weekend, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, just a little passing anecdote. Uh, everybody spent, you know, all of 2020 talking about the end of the world. So my dear wife, uh, for my 40th birthday celebration, just bought us tickets to the literal end of the world. Uh, so we're departing uh, tomorrow morning for the southernmost city on the planet. And that is, of course, Ushuaia down in uh, Terra del Fuego. So I'm hoping that we get some good seafood down there, uh, cold water crab, oysters awesome. and the like. So I'll let you know. <laughs> hopefully you get to see a, um, a killer whale eat a seal or whatever it is they do down there. Yeah, hopefully my five-year-old daughter is not standing on deck to witness that. <laughs> that would be quite horrifying. <laughs> Yeah, she's looking forward to the penguins. I don't want to see one of them, uh, a bite-sized <laughs> bite flightless bird go down the gob of a killer whale. Yeah. But um, all right, mate. So let's catch up when I get back from the end of the world. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike. <laughs>
to podcast at bonaprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.